we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Welcome back. Cybersecurity regulations have been on the rise lately. So this week, Class 5 Foundry Fellow Gabe Rudin sat down with Gina Valdetero, co-chair of Greenberg Traurig's U.S. Data Privacy and Cybersecurity Practice, to talk about how she got into cyber law, instant response, and the new SEC cyber rules. Hope you enjoy. With us today is Gina Valdetero, who is doing incredible work at GT, or Greenberg-Trarig, and you are the co-chair of their data privacy and cybersecurity group. I would love to know a little bit more about how you found your way into data privacy and cybersecurity law. So it's a really exciting time to be an attorney in this space. Uh, 20 years ago, this wasn't an area of law. I mean, obviously we had HIPAA, we had the GLBA, but there was not really a specialty that was strictly privacy or security. Um, and so it's not like when I went to law school, there were any classes, I mean, absolutely zero classes that you can take in this area. So I'm always fascinated when people are telling me about the awesome curriculum <laughs> offerings that law schools now have in this space. Um, I started out as a commercial litigator. So I was defending companies. I've always been in big law. Um, and defending companies and class actions and consumer actions. Uh, and then I had a conversation with my now partner, David Zatuni, uh, around 2011, 2012, uh, where he said, you know, I'm seeing more and more companies have people breaching their data. And it turns out there are some laws that say you've got to report this if it happens. And no one really knows how all this works and knows how to handle these types of incidents. So I'm the only one at the firm who's doing it and it's ruining my nights and weekends. So do you want to learn and also have your nights and weekends ruined? Um, At the time, I was very busy working on litigation. So, of course, I said (laughs) yes, uh, because I clearly have a pathological inability to say no. Um, But it ended up being one of those conversations in life where it you don't realize the significance of the time. But it is not an understatement to say it changed my life because I started to... Um, shadow him. I got certified through the International Association of Privacy Professionals, the IAPP. Uh, At the time, they were still requiring the test to be in person. It was on a Scantron. So I was in Washington, D.C. with my flip cards. You know, I made these little cards. I hadn't studied for a test in years at that point. Um, So I got to nerd out a little bit. And then we had to wait like eight weeks to get our results, which was a bit nerve wracking. Um, so I hadn't had that level of anxiety since I took the bar, although it wasn't quite, the stakes weren't quite as high to be clear. Um, and then, you know, as things evolved, we started seeing more and more security incidents. It became a bigger part of my practice. Then 2016 GDPR, um, and the focus became, Hey, now we actually care about privacy too. Uh, you know, I always think about security and privacy as like fraternal twins. So they're actually quite different, but they go hand in hand. 
Um, and so I started to learn privacy. Candidly, I read the GDPR cover to cover probably about 12 times. And then I would pick up the phone and call David and be like, I don't understand what this means. What does determining the purposes and means of processing actually mean in English? Um, and so, you know, from there, we started to see the movement with California um, and then it's exploded. So I, I just want to just real quick go through that proposition that you were given, which is how would you like to have no nights and weekends? That's a fantastic way to introduce <laughs> somebody to the field. Um, but maybe we could get to like, why is that the case? So like, what is a breach? What context yeah. it like, what's the context where a breach happens and what are the legal obligations that are triggered when a breach occurs? And are, are there different variables that impact what a breach is? Yeah. So let's talk about the evolution of it. Because when I first started doing this work, it was a lot of payment card breaches. And then with the advent of pen and chip, we saw those go way, way, way down. Um, so then it became a lot of business email compromises. So we were dealing a lot with that. And then companies started deploying multi-factor authentication, made business email compromises tougher, although we still see quite a bit, surprisingly. Um, and we would occasionally see ransomware attacks. Um, but and I'm talking like 2016. So in those cases, we didn't ever see data exfiltration. It was all about encrypting the systems and then putting the company in a position where they had to pay for the decryption key because otherwise you really couldn't operate. We had one where the, I swear the threat actor went on vacation in the middle of negotiations <laughs> because he ghosted us for a solid week and our client was freaking out because they were like, we can't do business. We, like, we literally can't operate. This guy's not responding to us. Um, and then he finally reemerged with no explanation. Um, but it was a very, very tense time. Um, and, and then when we, when COVID hit, we started seeing a shift, um, really dramatically to remote work. And so I saw a lull in cases. And I remember saying to one of my partners, like, this is weird, right? Like, I feel like we should be getting calls constantly. And this was March, April. And what I didn't realize is the threat actors were just figuring out how to exploit people because then March or sorry, May of 2020 hit. And then it was just an avalanche. And since then, what we've seen is a real focus on exfiltration of data. Uh, companies have gotten smarter about backups and being able to restore um, from backups without paying for the decryption key. So now it's all about data theft. Wow. So some of our audience um, consists of people who are familiar with the field. Some of the people may not be. Uh, too familiar with those distinctions. Do you mind breaking down those definitions for us, like data exfiltration versus what's a ransomware attack? And how do you know if you're in one versus the other? I think about it like a house. So if you're, it's just a pure ransomware attack, no data exfil, that somebody got into my house, but didn't really do anything, except they put a padlock around it. So I cannot get into my house. I can't access anything. I can't do anything. And in order for me to get access to my house, I need to pay for the key. Now, this is where the analogy falls apart, but let's say I have a shadow house. So it's like my house, but like how my house looked 12 hours ago. So, you know, I'm sure like, you know, kids sporting equipment everywhere or whatever. Um, if I'm able to go and restore from that house, I don't need the key 
to my existing house. You know, maybe I've lost whatever we did in that house in the last 12 hours. Um, so my shadow house is, is a backup, right? So when we think about companies, they back up their data. If you are able to say, hey, we're just going to pull the backup, it's clean, it's not been uh, infected, it hasn't been encrypted, uh, then we don't need that key. Um, and so companies have started to get really smart about their backup strategy. A lot of times the backups are separate and apart from their live systems. So if you get your live system infected, you can't then, you know, the threat actor can't then move laterally and get into that second house. It's just not possible. There, there's a fence, right? I mean, it's, air, it's called air gapping. There's a separation. Um, data exfil is now picture the threat actor has gone into my house and has rifled through my drawers and said, oh, here's her passport. Here's a bunch of financial information. Yeah, I'm going to take some jewelry, whatever, and I'm going to steal it. And so I'm going to tell her, I will both give you the key to the house if, if I encrypted it, which is still happening. Um, and I'm going to give you back your data that I stole. But if you don't pay me, I'm going to post all that data out there for anyone to steal um, and or I'm going to sell it. And then, you know, someone's going to use it for identity theft or some kind of nefarious purpose, maybe. And so now you have two decision points. Do I need it to operate? Yes or no. And increasingly companies don't because they have good backup solutions and strategies in place. Do I need it to prevent potential posting of the data? And it become, becomes really challenging because the threat actors are going for data they know is going to cause you heartburn. So usually what they're doing is looking for unstructured data. So it's data that is saved on a local drive or a shared drive. So they don't even need to get into your crown jewels database, you know, your key customer database or your employee database because people work in a way that is convenient and fast. I'm no exception, you know, and you save stuff locally if you're on an airplane or, you know, you just need to get it out and you're having a problem with your database, you know, crashing when you're trying to upload something. So you're just like, oh, I'm just going to save it locally. And so they'll go and look for local folders like human resources, legal, um, et cetera, finance. And that's a set they steal because they know that that's information you'll care about. The problem is even if you pay a threat actor to quote, get your data back, which usually means they'll confirm they've deleted it. Um, sometimes they'll show a video of the computer screen where they're deleting the folders. You know, they'll try to show some kind of proof. You never really have a full guarantee, right? You know who you're dealing with. That, now everybody says, well, how can you trust them? I mean, you can't ever really trust them, but in terms of how are they going to continue to be effective at extorting companies, there has to be some indicia that they'll uphold their, their end of the bargain. And it's a small community. And if there's a group that is known for double crossing you, that group's not gonna get paid. Like everyone in the industry who, who knows, you know, who these threat actor groups are, will be all told about this, we'll all talk. And then if we have a client who's hit by it, we'll say, hey, we have some intel that company, you know, there was a company that paid them. And then a month later they got double extorted or whatever. So uh, it can be challenging. The other thing is, under the data breach notification laws, so each state has a law that says if sensitive personal information about residents of this state, and I'm generalizing, they define what that means, social security numbers, for example, 
if that has been subject to either unauthorized access or acquisition, um, you would have an obligation to notify those individuals. And in many states, depending uh, the state regulator, usually the attorney general. And so what are you getting by paying a threat actor? You really have to weigh this. Um, you know, you're getting the data not being posted, but you still have to tell people. You can't avoid that. Um, and now increasingly, and this is really, we've seen a huge uptick in this since um, the California law, privacy law was passed in 2020, which provides a statutory private right of action for damages for California residents um, if their information's breached, even if they don't have any actual harm. Um, we've seen a huge increase in lawsuits. So class action lawsuits arising from data breaches. When you report to certain state regulators, certain states like Maine, for example, post it almost immediately. And they post a copy of your letter and information about the incident. And there are plaintiff's lawyers who regularly check and then start looking for class reps. And, you know, I, I was thinking about what you were saying right there, there's been an uptick because of the law in private rights of action. Does that possibility or or rather eventuality of a private right of action in some cases impact uh, companies or victims rather a decision on whether or not they're going to even pay the person who's been, you know, the criminal because they know yeah. they're going to get sued anyway. So why would I pay twice? Right. And yeah, absolutely. It does. You know, we walk through this exact scenario with clients all the time where it's, you know, you have to think about what are the consumer's expectations. It depends on who you are, too, because, you know, if you're B2B and you don't have any sensitive personal information, the information may not be that valuable. If you're B2C and you have sensitive personal information, those are your customers. Right. And, you know, you will have to potentially tell them or they're going to figure out that the stuff was stolen from your system and you didn't pay and now it's out there. If you're B2B and you're hosting sensitive information of individuals that belongs to your business customers, that's that's a harder one. That, those are actually the toughest ones because you're trying to address lots of competing interests. Um, I think increasingly companies are deciding not to pay if it's just for exfiltration for the very reason you mentioned. So I imagine... In in the way that I can see a breach happening, a client calls you on the worst day of their business career yeah. and says, we've identified an incident yeah, and we think it's scenario A or we think it's scenario B. They call you. You don't have the full story yet. What do you actually do? They, they've told you their data has been compromised in some unknown fashion. Who do you call? What's your next steps? Can you just walk me through what a data breach has looked like in some scenarios, depending on who your client is? Absolutely. So let's take a ransomware incident because that's common. And it's the one you kind of read about the most. So if we get the first call, um, my first question is, do you have insurance? So cyber insurance has become a big business. Um, Companies were writing policies left and right, no, no real underwriting, you know, years ago because they weren't getting claims. Um, and then again, when when 2020 happened, we saw a huge shift, and now um, there are far fewer players in the space. They're writing much more extensive policies that don't have as robust coverage. There are more exclusions. 
Uh, but a lot of the cyber insurers will sometimes require you to use their pre-approved panel of vendors, uh, which includes legal counsel. So we always have that conversation um, if GT is not on a panel. Um, but the forensic investigators, generally the same kind of cohort of 10 are on everybody's panel. These are folks I work with all the time. Um, depending on the issue and depending on who I think might be available, I start messaging my, my friends at these places and say, hey, what's the soonest? We ran some more attack. What's the soonest you can get a team together to get on a call um, so we can scope? And in general, we are able to get someone on a call with the client, a forensic investigator, within an hour of getting the call. I mean, it, almost always, it, we can move pretty quickly and, and find someone. And so then the forensics guys ask questions. They need to get a sense of what, you know, how many endpoints do you have? What's encrypted? What's, you know, your system look like? Um, and then they scope it out, get a quote, we get the contracting in place, and then they start working. So in, in some instances, we've been able to do this within a couple of hours. Um, and so, you know, their goal is generally to figure out what happened. Um, so there's a difference between forensics uh, who are actually investigating the root cause and then a company that's helping you restore and recover. So some of those companies do both. Sometimes they partner with another company who actually comes in and says, okay, we're going to you know, make sure your backups are clean. We're going to help you re-image these computers, whatever. Um, if it's ransomware, there are companies out there, sometimes it's the forensic investigator, sometimes it's not, who actually their job is to negotiate with these guys. And those companies actually have great intel. So I've had many experiences where the vendor had better intel than law enforcement. Wow. Yeah, because you, you don't have to. Well, that's changing. But in general, you know, if you get hit with a ransomware attack, you don't have to report it. Um, and so a lot of companies don't. I mean, it, which is a shame. Um, you know, law enforcement can be really helpful in telling you, here's what we're seeing with this group. Um, if you're going to make a payment, you absolutely should report it because you could potentially run afoul of OFAC sanctions. So the Department of Treasury in the United States has said, you can't pay, and this is agnostic of a, a particular event, like you can't provide material support uh, or, or finance um, terrorism, nation state actors. So before you make any payment in connection with a ransomware attack or an extortion attack, you need to make sure that you don't have any reason to believe that this is someone who's on the OFAC list. Um, and, and one of the things Treasury has said is, we'll look at whether you went to law enforcement to check that first and you told them you were going to make a payment. If it turns out you paid someone you shouldn't have, right? You know, were you trying to hide it? Were you being sneaky? You know, whatever. Um, so before you make a payment, you've got to go do all of that. Um, people always ask me, do you need a crypto wallet? Do I have to go as a company and like open a wallet so we can buy a million dollars in Bitcoin? No, uh, there are vendors who will make that payment for you, uh, which is extremely helpful. <laughs> Um, yeah, and, and you know, sometimes depending on the type of company, it, you know, it we might bring in a PR expert. So we have folks we work with who are really good. And the reason you might need to do that right away is if the company is literally unable to do business and there's no hiding the fact that they've had an incident. Or I mentioned B2B incidents are expensive because you typically have an obligation under your contract with your business customers to notify them within, you know, usually a short period of time, like 48, 72 hours. 
if there's been some breach of the system that you know would affect them. So that's tricky because these things take time. So you have to go to your customers right away and say, hey, we've had this incident. There's really not much we can tell you. Um, and I always say, keep it focused on how is this going to impact them, both operationally or you know with data, um, and, and give them regular updates so that you don't have your B2B customers wondering what's going on. You know, if people don't hear from you, they assume the worst. What are they hiding? What's happening? Is it a complete disaster over there? Um, and so, you know, doing regular updates, like usually twice a week in the beginning, I think is, is sufficient, um, is really helpful. And a PR firm can be really, really helpful in making sure everyone's getting a timely response and the responses are consistent. Wow. So you're dealing with a bunch of different stakeholders, organizing a team and kind of shepherding this process. Yeah. Um, are you as the attorney on the case, kind of the quarterback and, yeah. and letting them know these are your legal obligations. These are, this is the realm of a business decision versus do not go afoul here because this is something that may come to bite you. And do clients actually, do they, tend to be looking towards individual vendors without consulting you at some point? Sometimes. sometimes. Yeah. So sometimes we get the call from a forensic investigator who says, hey, we, we got a call directly from this client and we've explained to them they need to bring in counsel. And the reason for that is, is all the things you mentioned, but also privilege. So the way it is done in the industry and the, the best practice is counsel hires these vendors. Because counsel really can't, I can't get legal advice based on what the company is telling me. I need to know what an expert says happened. Because whether or not we see evidence that a threat actor took data or looked at something or did something is not something I know. It's not within my knowledge because uh, I'm not a forensic expert. So I need someone to give me that information so that I can say to the client, okay, now we have triggered, you know, like the SEC just finalized their rules for public companies. Um, which requires notification within four days of, or business days of determining uh, a material event occurred, which is now specific to cyber events, which is a very hard trigger to meet. I can't make that determination without relying on a forensic investigator telling me like, yes, you know, we're, this is what we found today. And me interpreting that legally and saying, all right, time to get that A-crate ready to file and you know, move forward. There are other, uh, I should just be clear, there are other um, regulations and laws in place that require for certain regulated entities, usually like insurance companies or financial institutions, to notify as well the regulator in a shorter time frame. So, you know, New York um, Department of Financial Services has a law that says 72 hours. The shortest one is 36 hours under the banking law. So, you know, if you're regulated, I think by like FDIC or OCC. So that's another thing, you know, one of my first questions is like, what business is this? And if it's a bank, my radar immediately is going off for all the different options of how they might be regulated. So we don't miss those laws. Wow, yeah, so it depends on who you are as a client basically, or as a company yeah. and yeah. what those obligations are. So you mentioned that the SEC has these new rules on cybersecurity. Uh, breaching and reporting material incidents. Has there been in, uh, has there been like strong industry pushback on that? I, I've read a bit that <laughs> there's been some lobbying trying to soften what that means. Um, but is is that 
the newest law that you would say is most on point to what you're dealing with? There's been a whole host of new regulations that have passed this summer, the summer of 2023, for those listening in the future. Yes. So originally, the SEC, you know, they did the proposed rule and then they opened it up for comment. Um, and based on feedback, they did actually change some things. Um, they softened it in some ways. Um, but ultimately, what they came down to was the whole point behind requiring disclosures of material adverse events is to give investors the information they need to make investment decisions. And one of the things that they said, and you know, if you read all the commentary before the final rule, one of the things they said is you could potentially be giving an unfair advantage to criminals who know that there's a cyber event, uh, but you know these other innocent investors have no idea. Um, the challenge I will say on that rule is really twofold. One, as much as the SEC says it's not our intent to to interfere with an ongoing investigation by requiring these disclosures. So we're obviously not wanting that to be the case. Um, but it feels really strange to be like, we're negotiating with a threat actor, for example. At the same time, we have to put out public notice to the whole world that we're in the middle of negotiating with a threat actor. And you wouldn't be that specific, but you know, people can read between the lines. That just feels strange. And I think that there's um, real tension between what the law is requiring and how this actually works in practice. And that's where the comments really focused was, was on that issue. Um, the SEC is like, yeah, we get it, but you know, too bad. Um, the other piece is how do you determine what's material? So the SEC has guidance, you know, material adverse events, there's financial issues, uh, reputational, et cetera. I am struggling candidly with, at what point have you reached that threshold really? Because if a company has a ransomware attack and they have cyber insurance, then maybe of short-term financial impact, but if they have enough coverage, even things like business interruption, for example, or a third-party lawsuit should be covered to, you know, to a certain degree. So it's not necessarily financial. And reputational, maybe having a ransomware attack three years ago would have been a big reputational hit, but it's so commonplace now that it doesn't have the same impact. Uh, the, the news story is not as interesting. So that's where I, you know, I, I've been digging into this. We're talking to clients, advising them. We're updating incident response plans to account for this. Um, I think you'll probably see over-reporting um, where companies are going to play it safe um, and go ahead and put something out because they don't want to be accused of being cute and trying to avoid notification um, by, you know, making a, a technical argument, even if the argument I think would be legally and intellectually honest in most cases. Wow. So it's more of how are you complying with the law that can end up being more impactful on the back end versus what's actually going on with the breach itself? Like, are you doing any kind of without going into specific cases, but like maybe in the past you've seen uh, decisions by certain companies to look at a breach and try to disguise it as something that wasn't actually a breach and, or, you know, candidly not reporting, you know, yeah. and uh, that itself could have done more reputational harm than the actual access to the data itself. Absolutely. So, it is difficult sometimes to explain to companies 
you had this happen. You have to tell people. And the law requires in telling people what happened or whatever that you you essentially are making admissions, right? You know, so that if somebody sues you later, like you can't come back and say this didn't happen. I mean, you can argue, you know, we still had adequate security and happened notwithstanding that. And there are other defenses available. But, you know, it's it's a weird situation where you have to tell on yourself and then um, live with the fact that you told on yourself and all the consequences that flow. But I always say, like, people understand at this point breaches happen. I mean, you know, Joe Public gets it. Everyone's gotten a million letters saying, oops, sorry, but your stuff's out there. If you try to bury it and you try to make a decision that you're not going to notify, I always say when you wake up for the next two or three years in the middle of the night to, I say get a glass of water, but I'm going to be honest, like it's usually they use the bathroom, right? You wake up in the middle of the night and like it's three in the morning and you start thinking it's that, that, that thing in the back of your head that's ruminating that saying, you know, um, I'm sure this is going to be fine, but what if? It's that what if, and if your risk tolerance is high and that doesn't actually happen to you, first of all, I'm jealous because this is, this is why I'm a lawyer, right? It's like because of that paranoid rumination. Um, but if you're going to think what are, you know, it's a small chance this blows up in my face, but if it blows up, that could be company ending because in their examples publicly out there where that's happened and companies have tried to treat what was clearly a third party breach as something that wasn't. Um, and when it came out that that was what happened, it, you know, it's, it can have a huge impact. So you have to be really, really careful. Just, you know, keep your, keep your house clean, do, do the right thing, report, disclose, you know, show all your stakeholders are taking this seriously. Um, you will survive. You really will. Um, but what might not be survivable is making the wrong call on not reporting in a situation that, clearly requires reporting. You know, I, I will always say to clients, listen, at the end of the day, I'm not going to judge whatever you do, but I will tell you how a regulator will look at it. Let me tell you how a plaintiff's lawyer is going to frame this in a complaint. Um, and you don't want that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Listen to your lawyers. Uh, <laughs> is, I know, it's like takeaway there great advice right like i just call a lawyer call a lawyer yeah and you know and look uh my favorite people are lawyers so obviously i'm a big fan um but there are many many moving parts and it's increasingly the case that the law and your contracts are going to require you to make some very fast disclosures and decisions um and so that is really where bringing in a lawyer early on is key also, just protecting the you know the communications and the investigation under privilege to the extent possible um, is important. You know, I tell clients, look, the underlying information I can't protect, like that's discoverable. But it's the decisions and the discussions we have about what does this mean legally, what are your obligations um, legally. That's the stuff that you know you really want to keep privileged if you can. Do you think um, the new slate of data privacy and cybersecurity regulations is really a signal that this area should be more front and center to business decisions and just in the corporate world that cybersecurity and data privacy, as you're saying, they are different fields, but they are both increasing in importance to yeah. businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting because in the United States, we have 
been ahead of the game on data security issues and requiring disclosures. Um, in Europe, they've been ahead of the game on privacy and really caring about how people's information is used and shared. Um, and now we're starting to see an alignment between, and I say Europe, but obviously there are other countries that have you know, followed the GDPR model, but we're starting to see more leveling out. And so everything, when you think about what a company does, if you're dealing with any kind of human data, touches both security and privacy. You need to keep it safe, um, but you also need to make sure you're complying with, to the extent you can, um, the various privacy laws, uh, because A, you have to, and B, it's really about consumer trust and brand and reputational trust. Um, it is a really interesting time to be in this field. I mean, I feel incredibly lucky. Um, I'm also incredibly busy, <laughs> so, you know, um, so the nights and weekends thing is a, is a real thing. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, we're in a, at a time of reckoning and then add layer AI onto that, right? And so uh, in the technology, um, both in our ability to help make these laws easier to comply with and, and also in our um, maybe inability to try to figure out how you take this new technology, the laws were not designed to address and apply these laws. So, you know, it's like a round peg into a square hole, essentially. Um, so just one or two more questions here. I, you know, can't thank you enough for your time. What advice would you give to somebody who's an aspiring cybersecurity and or data privacy lawyer, but let's focus on the cybersecurity aspect. Yeah. What would you say is important for you to have either on the interpersonal and soft skill side or just from like pure knowledge, this is what you need. And why would you advocate for somebody to join this field? So that's a good question. Um, I think that you have to be very comfortable answering a call at eight o'clock at night, spending Labor Day weekends, <laughs> working nonstop on a matter, being on calls constantly. Uh, so you can't be too attached to your plans. You've gotta be really flexible. Um, I also think the ability to be available is super important. And these are emergency situations. Like I would consider yourself kind of the equivalent of an ER doctor. So you're on call, you're, it might be that you step out of that party because you have to, you know, deal with a client in a crisis because they, they really and truly can't wait. Um, so as long as you're comfortable with that concept, um, I actually don't think you need a technical background. I was a sociology major, which, you know, like, what are you going to do with that other than it's extremely interesting? Um, but I've learned on the job. Um, I've not been afraid to ask questions. And I've stopped prefacing it with this maybe a stupid question. Um, I'll just ask, right? So explain this to me. Or my favorite way of doing this uh, is when the tech guys are kind of going over my head, too. I'll say, well, for the non-tech folks on the call, like the client who's, you know, the CEO or the general counsel, can you break that down and, and tell them or tell us what that means, like in English? Um, and sometimes I know and sometimes I don't. Uh, but, you know, you have to get comfortable with like, you're the lawyer, you're not going to be expected to know everything on the technical side. That's not your job. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think just being really practical in your advice. You know, people could, anyone can read the law. Anyone can tell a client what the legal obligations are. I think being able to say, and here's where I think companies have gone wrong from a business perspective. 
um, that's where you really add value. Uh, and, and I hesitate to say this because someone's going to say, oh, well, it's not really legal advice. I mean, it is, though, right? Because it's it's how to interpret the law and your con- contractual obligations in a way that meets those obligations and ensures you don't blow up all your relationships and your reputation. Wow. Yeah. So it's you don't only need a lawyer to tell you what the law is. You need a lawyer to be wise counsel in that regard. Right. What am I actually doing here? What does it mean to me? And where have you seen other people fail in the past? That's all valuable information. And if it comes with privilege, I still see a benefit. Um, Well, Gina, I can't thank you enough. Uh, This has been really interesting for me. I hope our podcast listeners love it. And I can't wait to have another conversation with you in the future. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show. And this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.